If you've got a Bible, would you uh, turn with me to John? We are in uh, the fourth chapter of John. We've actually been walking through the Gospel of John over the last few weeks, and we find ourselves there in John chapter 4. We're going to start with verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again from Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus replied, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, that's the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth." The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Um, At the last church that I served in, um, one of my jobs as an associate pastor was to oversee the greeters and the greeting ministry there. And every once in a while, our greeting team would get together outside of church 
uh, to just kind of hang out and have a fun time together. And uh, one week, uh, this guy named Ray, who was the head of the greeting ministry, he invited us all over to his house or his neighborhood. He lived in a big subdivision, and they had this huge community center right in the middle of it. And it had this big pool, like a bunch of big pools and splash pads for kids to play and all kinds of stuff. And so he said, why don't you all come over, all the greeters, their families, everybody, um, and uh, we'll have some pizza and swim after church one Sunday. So we did, went over to Ray's pool, and it was awesome. It was like, it was like a bunch of different pools, splash, splash pads. It was amazing. And um, so we went to this pool, and I was there standing kind of near the shallow end, keeping an eye on my kids and making sure they don't drown or whatever, which is all I did at that time. And a lady came up to me, and uh, is, which doesn't happen a lot um, at pools. Um, she approached me, and um, I'm, I mean, it's th- this, this in a pool, it's like a 10-year-old kid, basically, with like a like a rug over them or something. That's what I look like under all this. And so she approaches me and she says, um, is your son from Ethiopia? And I said, yes, he is. We adopted him from Ethiopia. And she said, I have a son adopted from Ethiopia. And I said, oh my gosh, that's incredible. And when you meet, if an adopted family, you meet another adopted family, it is like an instant connection usually. And we immediately started talking. And she was so happy and she was so excited to talk with me that we talked for a really long time. Now, the reason I tell you this is because as uh, this lady uh, who approached me and I was having this really enthusiastic conversation with also happened to be wearing probably the smallest brightest, pinkest bikini that has ever been invented. And um, so as we were talking, uh, I looked across the pool to my wife, who was sitting on a lounge chair, and noticed that we were talking, um, and was just kind of sitting there the whole time, like... (laughs) And... She was, uh, like I said, very excited. I mean, this is, this is so cool. We live in the same town. Our kids are both from Ethiopia. And so we're talking. She's getting really enthusiastic. And we talked for a really long time. She, like, kept putting her hand, like, on my shoulder and stuff and just, like, oh, my gosh, you know. And, and then I started to notice that um, some other people were walking up to her. Uh, there was a, a guy, one of the elders at our church who's a greeter. He, uh, he kind of would walk over to where my wife was and talking to her and looking at me, and she was like, I don't know, and he was like, hmm, you know, and then everyone from our group ended up basically there um, around Ellie um, and uh, just kind of wondering, you know, what what is going on over here, Um, and so then my daughter came up, and my daughter is, this is great, she's very social, she, you know, always, you know, helps things not be awkward, or makes them way more awkward, and so she came up, and uh, she was, became fascinated with this lady's belly button ring um, that was just dangling there, and so she started kind of playing with it, and the lady was like, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, that's my belly button ring, and I thought, okay, this is, uh, this is uh, not getting better. This is getting worse. And, uh, and then eventually um, she said, listen, I really would love to get, we need to exchange phone numbers um, because that's also something you do. If, you, if we meet a family that lives there in our same city, their son's from Ethiopia, we want our kids to even hang, get to hang out and stuff. So we go, uh, I'm like, yes, absolutely. Um, let me give you my wife's phone number. She's that lady right over there. Uh, doesn't look happy. And... Um, she, um, she gets her phone out, 
and then just very obviously gets my phone number and puts it in her phone and okay, well, that's so cool. Then meet you and we'll talk. And, um, and then I made the walk of shame basically back to the lounge chair uh, where everyone had gathered, uh, the entire greeting ministry, you know, and, and as much as I wanted to make jokes about that's, that's a good greeter right there, guys. That's, that's how you do it. Uh, it was just, you know, so what was that? You know, what was going on there? What were you guys talking about for so long? And uh, no matter how much I tried to explain it, I, don't, I still don't really think. I think Ellie just was like, you should have just jumped in the pool, you know, like... <laughs> fallen in the pool or something, you know? I'm sure you could do that. You've done it before. Uh, The reason I I bring that up is because whenever we talk about this interaction between Jesus and this woman at the well, every commentator, every scholar, every person, immediately the first thing they will say is, Jesus shouldn't have been talking to this woman in this situation culturally. Uh, It was very inappropriate for a rabbi to talk to any woman Uh, especially when her husband wasn't there. In fact, they would refer to rabbis as the bruised and bloodied men sometimes because they would run into things while averting their eyes while women are in public. They're not even supposed to look at them. And so as Jesus is at this well in the middle of a hot day, the six hours noon, he's there and he's resting and she comes and he asks her for water. Well, in doing that, she is what everyone is in this entire account surprised at Jesus, right? Every person, the disciples, the woman, is surprised by how Jesus is acting because it's just so inappropriate. He asks the woman for water, and she says, why would you talk to me? Why are you asking this of me? And then we have to ask ourselves, where's everybody else? Well, the reason this woman is here in the afternoon Uh, there's a reason for this because in this culture, like it gets hot early and also you don't go get water in the afternoon, you go get water in the morning. You wake up, you go out and you get your water at the well. It wasn't that far from where everyone lived. And you get the water and you bring it back. Uh, So you can have it for your whole day. You can have water for your whole day, be ready for the day. And yet this woman wasn't getting it in the morning when all of the other women would go get water. She was getting it in the afternoon and there was no one else there, just her and Jesus. Why? Well, we learn this about the woman. We learn why eventually. We learn that she's been married five times and right now she's not even married to the person that she's living with. And in this culture, this is one of the most scandalous things that you can do. This woman is an outcast. The other women don't want to be around her. She certainly probably doesn't want to be around them. And so she comes at noon to get her water for the day, and Jesus asks her for some. And they begin to talk about water and thirst, and he, being Jesus, uses the opportunity to have a conversation with this woman about what it really means to thirst, what it really means to have water, and that he offers a water that is better than the one that you can drink that will leave you thirsty again. And Jesus says this to her. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. In an arid climate, in a hot place where people really know what thirst is. We don't know what thirst is. We, know, we say thirst when we say we're going to drink something. I'm thirsty. That just means I plan on drinking something. We haven't experienced real thirst. Human body is made up of so much water that to be uh, void of water, to be really thirsty, to be dehydrated is one of the most miserable, painful things that we can experience. And Jesus says, this water that you drink, this physical water, will leave you thirsty again you will be thirsty again. Well, everyone drinks water. This is what we do. So what are you saying? Are you saying that the thing that we all drink to stay alive isn't good enough for us? It's not sufficient enough for us? And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. 
He says, I offer you a water, a spiritual water, that will not keep you thirsting any longer. And she says to him, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. What Jesus is doing here with this woman, he does with each and every person he encounters, and he does it with us. He does it when we encounter this. He tells us something about ourselves. He tells her something about herself, something that might seem so obvious that you would never even think about it. He tells her this, you're thirsty. He simply points out to her the fact that no matter how much she drinks of this water, she will still be thirsty again at the end of the day and will have to come back and draw water. But he's not talking about physical water. He's talking about something spiritual. He's saying, you will thirst indefinitely. And you'll be able to do something about it in the short term, but that will never take care of it permanently in a lasting way. And so he offers her water that will well up in her and become a spring of eternal life. Now, when we talk about this phrase eternal life, it's misunderstood so often because we think of eternal life as you go to heaven when you die. When you die, you get to go to heaven, and that's eternal life. That's when it begins. That's how it works. But this phrase interpreted in the Greek is much bigger than that. It means two things. One, it is referring to a, it's referring to a whole, real type of life. It's referring to a type of life that isn't affected by time. Yes, it's, it's not affected by time in the way that life is uh, for those who don't have it. It's not affected by death in the way that life is for those who don't have this water that wells up within them. You begin the moment you are born again to live forever with this life. But what it also means is that it's a real life. The literal literal translation of this word eternal life is an unending real life. It is real. So thousands of years ago, people were talking already about this idea that there is a real life and there is a other life, a fake life, or a counterfeit life. And Jesus is offering this to this woman. When a person is filled with this water, they live on eternally. No matter what happens, they will not be defeated by death. They will not be defeated by death, and they will not experience time in the way that many of us do. Yes, they, they, they experience the effects of physical death. Their bodies are affected by it. They will pass away. But our experience is so changed by this eternal welling up water that but Scripture tells us that death itself has lost its sting. If I was going to describe death with a word, I would not use the word sting. I would use a much stronger word to describe the thing that all people fear more than any other thing. I wouldn't say it stings. Stings is something that my kids are afraid of, that I stopped being afraid of. At some, hypothetically, that I stopped being afraid of at some point in my life. But what we're told in Scripture is that the effects of this real life, this unending life is such that death itself has lost the ability to even sting us because we're already living, if we experience this, we're already living eternally now. The person you are, day one, of being born again, like Jesus told Nicodemus, that person that you begin to become is the person that is already experiencing this eternal life. Uh, Tegan asked Ellie this last week, what, what is Easter all about? She's like, all right, here we go, you know? She said, Easter is a time that we remember that Jesus died and he was crucified 
And then he rose again. And by doing that, by being raised again, he defeated death, which means that death doesn't have power over us, which means we don't have to be afraid of it, which means that we get to also kind of pass through death in the way that Jesus did. He was resurrected. That's why we call it Resurrection Sunday, because Jesus himself was resurrected. And buddy, do you know how much that means? Do you know what that means for you, Tegan? Do you know what that means for you? And he said, mom, I was asking about eggs. I just wanted to understand the egg thing because I don't understand the eggs. And she was like, okay, well, anyway, now you know that part too, uh, but there's more to it than the eggs. So hopefully, if nothing else this morning, guys, there's more to it than the eggs. There you go. You got something out of the Easter sermon. What we celebrate now is that unending quality of this life, but it's also a real life. It's a genuine form of life rather than a counterfeit one. You know what counterfeit is? Counterfeit is a replica of something, an identical copy of something that doesn't carry any real value or worth. One is worthwhile, the other is worthless. And the opposite of this real life he's talking about is a counterfeit one, one that seems like it, one that can feel like it at times, but one that ultimately isn't worth what this real quality life is worth. Real life actually begets more life. It produces something beautiful, something meaningful as it goes on. Why would we settle for a cheap imitation of something that could be real? Counterfeit things are tantalizing, they're appealing. You can go out and decide to get tremendously into debt and spend the next six months of your life doing everything you've ever wanted to do, experiencing everything you've ever wanted to experience, and then at the end of the day be left with a ton of bills and have had such a great experience, but the problem is that's not real life. That's a counterfeit. That doesn't last. You can go every day, you can go home every day and drink until you feel better, you feel good, things feel good. And you can do it every day and it'll work every day. It'll take more and more over time, but it'll work every day. But that's not real. That's not real life. You can leave and go find a person who will make you feel good, complete, and satisfied. And, and you can find a different person all the time. And it will feel good, but it's not real. It won't be real in the way that we're talking about here. You can sit in front of a TV all day long and play video games in your mom's basement, and you can have no worries in the world, but it's not real, I'm sorry to say. It is not real Life. Nothing against basements. They're great. But same thing in an attic, I guess. But it's not real. You can obsess over the image that you are projecting to people. The way that people see you. You can perfectly manicure and curate a life online that other people see that they're envious of. You can control all of that. You can only allow people to see what you want them to see, and you could hold back anything that you don't want them to see. Many of us are so good at this that we can become famous even within the very few circles of friends that we have, but it's not real. That's not real. It's counterfeit. In the end, it's not worth anything. The real life is. Water quenches our thirst, but we get thirsty again. 
this is what the counterfeit life does. It leaves us always needing more. It's only fulfilling and enjoyable temporarily, and then we need something to fill us up again. You've experienced this even in seasons of life. You might have a great childhood. You might have a great uh, time in school. You might have a great, like, you know, a few years as, like, maybe a married adult. And then maybe you have a family or you have kids, and it doesn't go the way that you expected it to go. Or maybe you want to have a family and kids, and you can't have a family and kids in the way that you wanted to. And you're aware that even though you were good up until that point, you're, it's not enough now. Because the thirst can be quenched when things are going well, when they're going according to the way we want them to go. But if ultimately our life is the sum total of our ability to do things well in whatever season we're in, then when the season doesn't go the way we expect or we want or things change, then we're thirsty again. Our thirst has only been quenched up to that point. I've talked to people who find this in retirement, that things aren't going the way they planned their whole life that they would go, that they thought that they would go. And they find themselves still having a great life behind them, but thirsty and wanting more because of the way that we constantly need to be filled up with it. God created us in perfection and capable of living forever. The beginning was absolute paradise because we found joy and peace and satisfaction in him and we did not know death and we didn't have to experience it. We have the most abundant eternal life available. Instead of life making us feel spent every day more and more, we would be filled up more and more. Could you imagine what that would be like if the longer that you lived, the more filled up you were with the desire to live and the abundance of life to live longer? Although so many of us, each day that goes by, we often think, uh, make us more calloused, more cynical, maybe more rigid at times. We don't feel like life produces life. We feel like life gets spent, and then we need more of it somehow. This is why suffering ends up showing us what's real so often. It's because as we, at times, have things taken and stripped away that we thought real life was found in, we recognize that it wasn't, and we're left with what we can find real life in. One of the worst things that can happen is we can get exactly what we want. When I was in high school, um, I saw a video that was, it was kind of an advertisement for the Mormon church. And it was a really well-made video, but one of the biggest selling points that was in it was the idea that if you became a part of this church, your family would look a certain way, that, that it, was a, it, was a, it was a place to raise a family well. And, and, and it really was convincing. It was like, look at, look at these people, how happy they are. Look at these kids. Look at, the, look at the morals that they have. Look at how respectful they are. Look at how happy this family seems to be. But one of the things that I found the longer I followed Jesus is that not as many people are convinced and converted by that as are convinced and converted by watching people go through suffering. We think the better life looks, people look at it and say, I want that. But what I found is true is that almost nothing has led more people to turn to follow Jesus with their life than watching people suffer well. Watching people suffer and still experience real life and hope in the midst of that. Time and again, I've heard from people who have had this happen. We see what this real life looks like and what a counterfeit life is. And so Jesus says to this woman, this is what I offer you. And she says, great, good. I don't want to have to come back and keep getting more water. So where do I sign up, right? Jesus is selling magic water that makes you like never thirst again. 
And Jesus then says something to her. He says, then go and get your husband. She's ready to do it. She's ready to take it on. She's so excited. And he says, go and get your husband. And immediately brings out what's really going on in her life. She's had five husbands. She's living with somebody who's not her husband now. And we read this and we think, this is the cruelest thing that Jesus could do. It is so cruel. Is this what it is then to encounter Jesus? Come encounter my Jesus. And when you do, the first thing he'll do is point out all of the things that you're ashamed of, that you don't like about your life. He'll drag back up all the stuff that you were hoping to try to forget that certainly nobody else seems to want to forget. And he'll overwhelm you with guilt and you'll be staring right in the face of all the worst things ever. And, uh, and then that's what it is to encounter Jesus, right? But that's not what he's doing. He's not bringing up something to try to devastate her and shatter her and make her feel hopeless and even guilty. But this isn't also some like crazy party trick that Jesus has where I can just look at a person and I can tell you the worst thing about them, right? You bring Jesus to a party. Hey, that's my friend Jesus. Brought him just in case we run out of wine later. And uh, I want to introduce you to my friend. Uh, it's my friend Bill. And uh, hey, Bill, nice to meet you, Jesus. Hey, uh, Bill, why don't you go grab your laptop and uh, pop open the old search history and show everybody what you've been doing, you know? Uh, uh, no, I don't think so. And, uh, you know, uh, hey, this is my friend uh, Stephanie. Hey, nice to meet you, Stephanie. I don't know what's worse. I don't know what's worse. The fact that those shoes that you're wearing cost like $1,000 uh, or the fact that you just canceled those World Vision kids that you were sponsoring in order to buy those shoes. I, I, can't, I can't decide which one's worse. What do you guys all think, you know? You know, you know? Hey, this is my friend Sue. Oh, hey, Sue, nice to meet you. I'm surprised you're here because weren't you just out in the car on the phone telling somebody how you hate all of these people and you can't stand being around them? That's weird. Why are you, why are you here? Oh, uh, I, what? That would not be nice. And it seems like that's what he's doing. It seems like the moment that this woman shows him, okay, fine, you've got me, I'm sold. He says, let me remind you of this terrible thing in your life. But what Jesus is doing here is so important. Jesus shows us uh, better than anyone that, that we thirst. He shows us that we thirst and that it will never be quenched unless we have this water that wells up within us. The other thing that he does is he knows us. And he shows this woman something, and we can see what it is, because how does she respond? She responds ultimately by saying, come and see this man who showed me everything that I did. He showed me, every, he told me all that I ever did, is what she says. And she's not saying it in this overwhelmed, guilty way. She's saying, this is amazing. He knows you. He knows me. And apart from telling us and pointing out that we know that we thirst and we know that we're trying to quench it with something that will never fully quench it, he's also saying, I also know what's going on inside of you. I've, uh, how, do you know how big of a deal that is for so many of us that spend so much time trying to know ourselves, that there is actually this other who knows us, really knows us well. And every time Jesus encountered somebody, it's what you see. And every time I encounter him, every time we encounter him here in the word, that's what we see. That's what we experience because he knows us. I was thinking this last week about, about this idea, you know, what do I really want? What do, what do we really want? I was asking people, you know, what do you think you know, this thing is? It, for the woman at the well, it's, it seems obvious. She doesn't want to be alone. She wants to be with someone. 
to the point of marriage after marriage after marriage, and, and even to a point saying, it's fine, we don't need to be married, I just want to be with somebody. It's clear what hers is. What's mine? What's, what's yours? And, and, and I realized it was a really hard question to answer because there was always some kind of easy, obvious answer, and I wasn't really sure if that was real. And then there was like this endless amount of thinking and analyzing you could do to go, no, but what really is it? What really is it? Would I even see it? And I came to realize that part of the problem is that we struggle to see our own things that we, this water that we're drinking while we're drinking it. Because most of us are engaged in that act. And so it makes it hard for us to see it. Most of us aren't able to recognize this thirst for what it is. What makes you happy? Is it love of people? Is it what you do? Is it your career? Is it your job? Is it money and what it'll do? Is it power and what it'll do? Is it people? Is it simply pleasure? Do you feel like every day there just needs to at least be something that's pleasurable? That's what the day ultimately was for? As Pastor Tim Keller says it very well when he talks about this interaction between Jesus and this woman, he says, as long as you think there is a pretty good chance you will achieve some of your dreams, as long as you think you have a shot at success, you experience your inner emptiness as drive and your anxiety as hope. And so you can remain almost completely oblivious to how deep your thirst actually is. You see, so many of us are in the process of pursuing this, that, that we see it as drive and as hope and as, and, as, and as passion and as vision and ambition. And it makes it nearly impossible for us to see how deep our thirst really is and what we're actually trying to quench it with. How good the news is that we have someone who knows us, who can see through all of that stuff. For the woman, he saw right through it. He knew it without ever having to see her life because he's God. And he pointed it out to her and immediately brought to the forefront the thing that she really needed to deal with. The primary way that God speaks to us today is through his word. And if he knows us better than we know ourselves, it means that as we pick this thing up and as we encounter him through it, that we will see ourselves. Now, the primary character in scripture is God. It is not us. The Bible isn't ultimately the most about us. And yet even, there's no way that we could ever understand ourselves for real without understanding God and who he is. There's no way because we're created in his image. We, we, we exist in him. But also, as we look at it, we see ourselves. And I have been convinced of the, the supernatural, like supernatural ability of this sacred thing to when I allow myself to be exposed to this thing, that it shows me who I really am and what's really going on in here. And I can walk away and I can say, he told me all that I ever did. This is what this woman says, but she says it with excitement and with joy. So he talks to this woman about worship. He says, an hour is coming, 
a lot of people think she's changing the subject and trying to talk about worship and things like that. Doesn't matter for Jesus. He's going to keep going. He says, you, the Samaritans, you, there, there comes a time when you will be able to worship God both in spirit and truth. One of the biggest reasons, probably the biggest reason why Jesus shouldn't have even been there in the first place was because Jewish people could not stand Samaritans. And they walked around Samaria and it took extra time to get to where he was going. But he walked right through it because he's Jesus. He doesn't care. He walked right through it. Then he meets a Samaritan woman at a well. And instead of not talking to her, he talks to her. And the reason that they couldn't stand the Samaritans is because like we saw in this video, a long time before the Babylonians had taken the northern part of the kingdom into captivity, they conquered them. And as they did that, as they took them into captivity, what happened was they basically uh, allowed the people that went in, they allowed their, their other gods to kind of mix in with Israel's God. They, they allowed their faith and their beliefs to be affected by these other religions and these other groups. They, they basically looked at them and their gods and the way they worshiped and they went, you know, I'm not experiencing God in this way and so maybe I'll try this. And I don't understand this part of God, and so maybe I'll just ignore it, and I'll maybe focus on this thing. That's what happens when these groups mix. That's why when God brings his people into the promised land, he says you have to push everyone out of the promised land. Because if you don't, then that will happen. And then some people, a lot of people came back in the northern kingdom, but again, they mixed and they settled for all of these different forms of this religion. But there were, there were a lot of people in the southern kingdom, people, people who were, were the capital city of Jerusalem, who were also taken into captivity, and they didn't. They didn't compromise. They didn't allow their beliefs to be compromised. And so they were very proud of this. And we read about it in the Old Testament, about people who said, no, I won't worship their king. No, I won't worship their God. My God is the only true God. And they were known for being the people who kept things pure, which is important, by the way. It's important to care about who God is and not let that change just because everyone around us is telling us something different. There's nothing that makes religious people more angry than less religious people, I think. When, when, you, when you know who God is, there's nothing that can be more frustrating than a group of people who say, I'm only going to take half of that because there's a benefit to it. And the Jewish people could not stand the Samaritans. They're heretics. They gave up. They watered down their faith. They didn't have faith. We have no, we have no purpose and reason to talk to them. We'd probably rather talk to people who don't believe in any God than people who have distorted our God. And so what Jesus says to this woman is that you will ultimately worship God. And the reason they talk about worship is because of this. When you have finally found this water and it is, it is within you and it is welling up into eternal life and you are experiencing the real life, do you know what your response to that is? Your natural response to that is to worship. Your natural response is not to want more of the things you have in life. It's not to think more about yourself all the time and to need things to be a certain way because now maybe they're feeling better for you. It is to worship because life comes from God. And if life comes from God, then worshiping God is life-giving. It's an expression. It happens naturally. And Jesus is saying to this woman, you will worship God in spirit and in truth. You will worship him with the passion that people seek to the point of changing what they believe to experience God in the way that they see other people doing it. But you'll, you'll worship him in truth. The more that you get to know who this God is, the more you'll want to worship him. How many of us can honestly say that that describes what it feels like to follow Jesus? That every day I just want to worship God more. It's so natural. It's like I don't even have to think about it. I have to contain it within myself. Not many. But Jesus is saying to this woman, 
ultimately the goal. And the goal of the church, as we've said before, is to worship. We exist to worship. The mission and the proclamation of the good news exists because worship doesn't exist. And so he tells this woman, you will do this. This is the response to it. And I think the question that we often ask ourselves is, if we don't feel that way, if we don't feel compelled to worship in that way, could it have anything to do with the fact that even though in word we say, I follow, I believe, I'm devoted, I'm committed, we still really draw life from all the same things that we did before? Well, if that's where life is found, then what would compel me to worship God? Worship is a wholehearted response to the goodness of who God is. It's not just something we do because it's worked into a service, you know? But if we're drawing life from God, it's natural. If we're not, then it isn't natural. It doesn't feel right. It feels void. It feels empty. And so we read that she leaves her water jar and she went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? The significance of this woman leaving her water jar is huge. She just doesn't even care anymore about getting water, which is kind of important. And she goes and tells the people the thing that you would think makes her ashamed. Come and meet the man who told me all that I ever did. I don't know if I would want, if I'd like advertise that, <laughs> you know? Hey, you want to meet someone who tell you everything you ever did? No, thanks. That guy sounds like a lot of fun at parties. But she goes with that as if it were good news. She goes out with that as if it were good news. And she tells everyone, we respond to this with worship and we tell everyone is the other way we respond. Blessed are the feet of those who bring the good news, who bear the good news. Blessed are their feet. Why? I love this video in that it shows the state of those feet because those feet have been wrecked in the process of bringing the good news. But what would compel someone to keep going because the news is so good? I have found life. I have found real life that cannot be taken from anyone. Life that is everlasting. And it came from someone who told me everything about myself, who I am. We tell everyone we are bearers of the good news. The gospel is good news about something that has already been done for us. We need only to respond to it with belief. But how can they believe if they haven't heard and how can they hear if we haven't gone? And so it's, it's natural that when we experience this thing that we would have a desire and feel compelled to tell people. For many of us, we hear about this and we are hearing it from a place of a person who has simply never considered this water that Jesus is talking about. Maybe you see Jesus or you see faith or you see religion as nothing but, like Matt said, a list of rules, something to do to make sure that you go to heaven after you die. No one's told you that it's real life or that this actually knows you better than you know yourself. But it does to the degree that is kind of un well, very unsettling at times. And to you, the answer, the suggestion, the, the only possible thing that you could, should do in response to hearing this is belief, is to say, I want the water that wells up with eternal life. 
I trust that that comes in Jesus. That in him, that I can have real life. And that in pursuing him, I will never thirst. No matter what happens, no matter what's given to me or taken from me. Some of the people who are the worst off in life are those who get all of the things that they're actually pursuing. Those are oftentimes the people who, at the end of it all, say, it was worthless. It was pointless. It was empty. It was meaningless. And I didn't realize until I got it all. For some of us, we have, we agree with every word that Jesus is saying. We agree with everything we read about here. But the problem is we don't feel this compulsion to worship this God. We don't feel this compulsion to bring the good news of this to others. I'm not saying it's easy to bring the good news to others. It is not easy to bring the good news to others. But we don't find ourselves wanting to. Is it possible that that's because even though we agree in word with what Jesus is saying, and we value being a part of a community that does, and we think there's value to it in life and in the world, that we still look to the same things for life, things that ultimately lead to something that's counterfeit. And that if those are the things we draw life from, then those are the things we're passionate about. And those are the things that we need. And without them, we'll only ever experience death. What Jesus offers is something that is amazing. He says to his disciples right after this, they're talking about food. He doesn't give them a break. He says, I don't need food. I don't need water. I need God. I need the Father. In him, I need nothing else. I want nothing more than to be able to say that. Let's pray. Father, today's a day that we celebrate what you've done for us. The fact that you have conquered death. You say that it has lost its sting. Father, we pray that as we worship you, that as we think about this passage between Jesus and this woman, that we would see ourselves in her shoes. That probably we're not outcast like she is. Probably not everyone knows our business like everyone knows hers. We're not forced to confront it as often as she is. But it's probably the fact that she's forced to confront it that leads her to respond. The response of this woman, Lord, is a response that all of us ought to have. Lord, we pray that you would search our hearts. We pray that you would, I pray, I pray that you would do what you have to do to show each and every person in this room what we are finding life in even if it means loss, Lord. I very cautiously pray that, God, because I don't like the implications of it, but I know that it's what we need, Lord. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Father, we praise you for that, that you have conquered death, that you're also the giver of good gifts and that you give us so much that we don't deserve and that you don't give us bad things our families, our marriages, our jobs, our money, our influence, our health, that these are only bad when we make them the source of our life, God. We pray that you would give us freedom from that so that we can truly enjoy these things as we're meant to. God, we thank you for this lesson in what real life is. We thank you for those in our own church who are really the ones teaching us what this means, Lord. 
God, we lift up Brent. We lift up Sherry. We lift up Tammy. We lift up Rebecca, Lord. We lift up those whose, as their bodies are failing, are the greatest teachers to us in what it means to have a real life that is found in you, God. That through the testimony of pain and suffering, that you speak more loudly to us in their lives than you do in any message, in any book that we read. Father, you are such a good God. We praise you today that you've conquered death and that it's lost even its sting. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a wonderful Easter.